0: Hi there, and welcome to Future to Fight For. My name's Ed Miller. I'm a senior campaigner here at GetUp. And if you're joining us for the first time, Future to Fight For is a series of conversations around some of the big challenges we face and some of the big ideas that we might need in order to overcome them. Today, we're talking with Rutger Bregman. He's a Dutch author, philosopher, and historian, and he's been called one of Europe's most prominent young thinkers. Uh, Prominent because he's written four books, which between them have been translated into about 24 different languages. Young because he's done so at the age of 30. His most recent book, Utopia for Realists, has been something of an international sensation, sparking a fresh debate on everything from whether or not we should have a shorter working week to whether or not the simplest solution to poverty might also be the best, giving everybody a guaranteed basic income. Rutger, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's pretty rare to find someone who, at such a young age, has made a splash in global, political, and economic debates. And I guess it's more surprising that you've managed to do that, despite having a background that's more in philosophy and history than specifically in economics. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to focus on issues of economic and social justice? In other words, what's the origin story of Utopia for Realists? Well, you
1: know... I was born in 1988, right? So there was one year before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, people of my generation were basically taught that we had arrived at the end of history, as some philosophers called it. You know, that pretty much we were done. We were rich. We were healthy, wealthy. And, and all that was left in politics was just management, technocracy, fixing problems, making sure that we have a little bit more economic growth, uh, you know, waiting for the next iPhone. I think that was sort of the zeitgeist in which I grew up. And then uh, 2008 happened, the financial crash. And, and Holland, where I'm from, was hit very hard by all of that. And now you know just what we've seen in the past couple of years the rise of donald trump and brexit i think that for a new generation it's pretty clear that history hasn't ended and what was always nagging at me is that there were no big dreams nothing really left to fight for you know if you go back in history you'll see that at every milestone of civilization the end of slavery democracy or equal rights for men and women uh, you know, these were all utopian fantasies once. And what I was wondering, asking a very simple question, what's next? What is our big utopian vision of the future? And I didn't know. So, uh, you know, that that's how it all started. I started researching and writing and reading about all this. And that's how the book developed.
0: One of the things that I think people sometimes find surprising about your work is that you've got such a great perspective on inequality and such a palpable sense of outrage about the way that modern economies treat human beings. Uh, surprising because, you know, you were born in the Netherlands, you grew up in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands, much like Australia, is a pretty well-developed economy that for many people probably looks a lot like a utopia. But I know that you've had the chance during your research and, and after writing the book to travel around the world, and I'm interested in what those travels have taught you about the common experiences of, of being a human being in the 21st century, uh, whether it's in a developed economy or not.
1: Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I had the, the fortune to tour around in Australia uh, last year, and t- I was really struck by the similarities between our countries. You know, you can travel half the way around the world and, and just discover that the questions that people are asking, and the things that they worry about are so very similar. We've seen a rise of burnouts, uh, work-related depressions, more and more people who are stressed out. I've spoken to hundreds of young people who worry about the meaning of their job. This whole phenomenon of what we call consumerism, you know, buying stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. The ra- extraordinary rise of bullshit jobs, you know, jobs that don't really need to exist. This is happening everywhere in Australia, in Scandinavia, in, in Holland, in the U.S. Uh, that's That's really what surprised me the most, is that actually... If you travel around the world, uh, it's not the differences that strike you, but the similarity.
0: And it's funny you say that because reading your book, the thing that really struck me wasn't the similar experiences across different countries and different cultures, but the similarities across different moments in history. Uh, you know, you make the point really well that the idea of a shorter working week isn't a new idea. In fact, it's a, it's a pretty old idea and it's had some surprising advocates at different points in time. I'm wondering if you can explain why you think that this time is different. Why do these ideas now have an opportunity to become more than ideas, to become reality?
1: Well, one of the things I discovered when I started researching this is that up until the 1970s, almost everyone believed, you know, all the sociologists, all the philosophers, all the economists, they all believed that we would be working less and less and less and less. Richard Nixon, for example, Richard Nixon in the 1950s said that we would have a, a four-day work week pretty soon. Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer, he predicted that boredom would be the great challenge of the future. So when John Maynard Keynes, the, the British economist, uh, wrote that we would have a 15-hour work week in 2030, he wasn't you know, some lunatic, crazy French person. <laughs> uh, it was just mainstream opinion back then. It's only since the 1980s that we started working more and more and more again. It's really a historical turning point. And um, what I'm just trying to show in my book that that this is not inevitable, that we can move to a completely different kind of economy, that we can redefine what work is and give everyone the opportunity to decide for themselves how they want to contribute to the common good.
0: One of the things that I think everyone struggles with when they're thinking about, you know, radical new ideas is believing that it's possible to change. And I'm interested in your perspective on if we had this turning point in the 1970s and 80s, what are the obstacles to us having another turning point uh, towards a, a better and brighter future?
1: Well, obviously, one of the main ideas in my book is the idea of a basic income. What not many people know is that it almost happened before. You know, again, I already talked about it. But Richard Nixon, the American president, almost implemented a modest basic income. At the end of the 60s, almost all the economists believed that basic income was the future. Uh, Milton Friedman, the great neoliberal economist, was in favor of it. But also John Kenneth Galbraith, you know, very left-wing economist, also thought it was a good idea. And Richard Nixon was like, oh, wow, well, if, if everyone wants this, sure, let's do it. And his bill for basic income got through the House of Representatives twice. And then it hit the Senate floor. But then Democrats over there, they were in favor of a basic income, but they wanted a higher basic income. So they rejected his proposal. It's it's a bizarre history full of crazy ironies. But th- then the question is, what what has been the real obstacle all this time? You know, why has it happened? There's one thing that pops up time and time again. And that's just the ideology, a 19th century ideology of what work is and what work should be. You know, the ideology that we should all work as much as we can in a paid job in a hierarchical relationship with an employer, pay taxes over that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's the only thing that we consider work. Uh, when we talk about caring for our kids or caring for the elderly or volunteer's work, we often don't consider that as valuable work. At least many politicians don't treat it in that way. So what I what I think is that the most important obstacle towards implementing something like a basic income is not about economics, but it's about ideology. We need to update our worldview and then we can move forward.
0: That's a fascinating history and I wanna come back to it in a second, but uh, before we go any further, for those who haven't read your book or maybe haven't encountered the idea before, I'm wondering if in your own words, you can give a bit of an explanation as to what a basic income is.
1: Sure, (laughs) very good question. Okay, so it's a very, very simple idea. A basic income is a monthly grant that is enough to pay for your basic needs. So food, shelter, clothing like like really the basics it's a floor on which you can always stand now what's very important is that it's absolutely unconditional so it's not a favor but it's a right you can always rely on it and no one's going to tell you what you have to do for it or what you have to do with it you know you can make your own choices in that regard it's a very simple quite radical idea with with a long history and uh, it's coming back now
0: and obviously the benefits of this kind of policy are immeasurable in a human sense. But one of the ideas that I think you get across really well in your book is that while this is a radical policy, it's also a pretty sensible one. That there are bigger costs attached to letting people live in poverty or be unemployed uh, than there are to just solving those problems directly through government-provided jobs or government-provided money. Can you talk us a little bit about that kind of conservative framing of progressive ideas uh, you know, and how it plays out in the case of poverty?
1: Well, that's probably the best example. What we so often see is that the left wants to do something about poverty because they think poverty is immoral are unjust, and that we should help the poor, that we should pity them. So what people and politicians on the left often do is that they use the language of caring. Now, I'm not totally against that. You know, there's a certain part of the population that is receptive to that kind of language, but I don't think you're gonna win elections with it. What I'm trying to do in my book is to use the language of progress and efficiency and innovation, and to show that eradicating poverty is actually an investment that pays for itself. The one thing that we really cannot afford is poverty. You know, you, you get higher health care costs, higher crime rates, kids do less well in schools. It's an incredible waste of human capital. So even if you don't have a heart, even if you don't really care about the poor or whatever, then you still have a wallet. You know, it makes financial sense. It's just that democratic or economies with a basic income are just more efficient. And in that sense it would just be the crowning achievement of capitalism. You know, We would give everyone the opportunity to move to a new job, start a new company, take risks. Uh, and I think that in the end, that is what innovation is all about.
0: Just to pick up on that, I think that those possibilities of, of what a basic income allow people to do are really important because... One of the uh, primary conservative arguments against any kind of social welfare policy is that it incentivizes laziness, that it removes an incentive for people to work. And your book suggests that the effect is quite the opposite. Do you want to talk us through one of the examples or one of the trials that have occurred throughout history?
1: You know, what what I've experienced is that often when you ask people, what would you do with a basic income? They say, well, you know, I've got dreams, I've got ambitions, don't worry about me. You only ask people, what would other people do with a basic income? And then they often respond, well, other people, you know, they'll they'll probably spend it on, uh, I don't know, drugs or alcohol or Netflix or whatever. So yeah, I mean, the only way to resolve that debate is just to look at the evidence. Let's see what happens when governments or NGOs experiment on a larger scale with giving people a basic income. And let's see what the scientists say. Well, We've been doing this since the 1970s. There have been huge experiments in Canada, in the U.S., but also lots of governments and NGOs have experimented with what we call cash transfers, just giving money to the poor and and see what they uh, do with it. Do they waste it or do they invest it? Um, And uh, time and time again, what researchers have found is that it works incredibly well. You know, one of my favorite stories is about what happened in uh, this Canadian city called Dauphin in the 1970s. Now, you should know, Dauphin was a quite small town where they decided to just completely eradicate poverty. It was also called the town with no poverty. It started in 1974. And for four years, there were lots of economists and sociologists and anthropologists who all moved into that town, you know, to study the effects, to see how it would work. So for four years, they collected a lot of data, uh, interviews, graphs, tables, you name it. Uh, but then after four years, there was a problem. A new government had just got into power, and they thought it was a very crazy experiment. They were just, you know, giving free money to people. So at that point, they decided, you know, stop this at once. This is this is ridiculous. Uh, and there was no money left to analyze the results. What then happened is that the researchers had to put all their files away in, in, in 2,000 boxes, you know, all the interviews, all the data. And for 25 years, everyone forgot about the experiment. You know, there was no research being done on it. It was. It was only much later that a Canadian professor heard about the records, found them, did the analysis, and actually discovered that this experiment in Dauphin was an incredible success. Right now, there are once again people doing PhDs about this uh, about this experiment, and what what they find time and time again is that you know healthcare costs went down, crime went down, kids did much better in school. And and no, people didn't turn out to be massively lazy. It was actually the other way around. They, especially the poor had the opportunity to contribute more to the common good and uh, and to you know invest in their lives, go to new jobs, invest in their education, etc. etc. So this is one of I think the, the most fascinating basic income experiments that happened, especially because you know it was such a success, and then everyone forgot about it.
0: I think this conversation has been fantastic so far, but I want to dive into a a, a bit of a conversation around some of the challenges and concerns that people often have around the idea of a universal basic income. Uh, You're one of the leading advocates, and I think that, It'd be great for people to hear from you, you know, what the answers to those common challenges are. So to kick us off, one really common concern is is that, a, you know, a universal basic income by providing everybody with a minimum standard of living would actually create a political environment where it were possible for conservative governments to undermine other elements of the social wage that people currently expect, like universal healthcare or universal education, uh, and rather expect people to have to pay for things themselves. Do you think it's likely to play out in that way?
1: Well, I think that's a very legitimate fear. you know, it's, it's something to worry about. And I do so as well. The thing is, every great idea can be hijacked, every great idea can be corrupted. And I don't think that's a reason to ignore and forget about these ideas. I only think it's a reason to explore them in more detail and to make sure that you know what you're talking about once you advocate a basic income. It's important to remember that there are hundreds of versions of basic income out there and and the devil is often in the details. A universal basic income would be a supplement to the great achievements of social democracy and of the welfare state as we have it now. So it's a supplement to universal healthcare. It's a supplement to public education. And on top of that comes the basic income, right? We need all those things. It would not only be the crowning achievement of capitalism, as I said before, it would also be the crowning achievement of social democracy. One thing is true though. There are some pretty good right-wing arguments in favor of basic income, and, and I think we should consider those as well. What I mean is the criticism of government paternalism. I believe that the real experts on the poor's lives are the poor themselves. And, you know, if people on the right say they're against government paternalism, you know, I would actually agree with them. I think that so often we, it's just better to hand out the salaries of all those officials and bureaucrats who are supposed to help the poor and to just give it to the people themselves who are the real experts on their own lives. You know, we have to do something about the, the, the rate in which inequality is growing and we have to give people the means uh, to make their own decisions.
0: All right. Concern number two is that a UBI doesn't do enough to change working conditions. It doesn't do enough to directly intervene in the job market to prevent some of the exploitation that we see in the gig economy with bullshit jobs that you talked about earlier. What's your take on how a UBI might affect some of those uh, phenomena?
1: Well, a basic income would change everything, especially in the long run. Just to give you one example, if everyone would have a basic income, then all the cleaners and all the garbage collectors and all the teachers and all the nurses, uh, they would have a universal strike fund. So they can always decide to stop working. And we know just from standard economic theory, if you give people more bargaining power, then their wages will have to go up. Now, we also know that if you know, garbage collectors, for example, go on strike, that's a disaster. So if we implement a basic income, what we'll see is that these wages will start rising. Now just imagine that you have a job that's not particularly useful. Uh, You know, you're a banker, you're a consultant, you're sending emails to other people all day that you don't really like, you're writing reports that no one's ever gonna read. You know, in my book I've got this example, the the only example that I know of where the bankers went on strike. Now this this happened in Ireland, 1970. The strike lasted for six months and, and then after six months the bankers came back I said, all right, all right, all right, uh, we'll get back to work. You know, nothing really happened. Um, so, in a basic income society, they won't have much extra bargaining power and their wages will probably have to go down. In the long run, the wages of all these different jobs will much better reflect the social value that these jobs actually contribute. So that's 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 just just if you start thinking about that, it will change everything. Uh, Then the garbage collectors and the teachers and the nurses will start earning much more money, will have to pay more taxes. They'll become the strongest shoulders, you know, in the economy. These jobs will have more status. And, And in that sense, I don't think we should underestimate how radical the idea of a basic income is. It will completely change the whole value system of our society.
0: The other big concern that a lot of people on the left of politics have is that a universal basic income maintains an unnecessary distinction between voluntary forms of work and paid forms of work. So if work has been historically defined with a number of forces like patriarchy and colonialism disregarding things like housework or or care for land by indigenous communities... that that a UBI simply masks that problem rather than directly tackling the challenge of redefining and expanding the definition of work.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, you could also, you know, argue it the other way around, that a basic income is a recognition of the fact that so much of the incredibly important work that we do is actually unpaid, and that we should give people the opportunity to do more of that kind of work. Uh, But let me also emphasize this, basic income is not a panacea there are many versions of it out there and there are lots of ad- additional policies <laughs> that we that we need in the future i do think though that it's uh, it it is an exciting big idea that could change that could change a lot but i i i won't pretend that it is so- the solution to everything or or anything like that
0: and as a final question rutger one of the things that I like asking people is that given the state of the world at the moment and the resurgence of reactionary forces uh, in Europe, in America, and even in Australia, um, it can be hard for people who are progressive, who want to get involved in politics, who want to dream big, to believe that something better is possible. And so as a final note, I, I wanted you to offer your perspective on what gives you hope.
1: Well. As a historian, it's always a bit easier to have hope than people in other professions, because we historians like to zoom out. (laughs) And when you zoom out, you quickly find out that things often used to be much worse. You know, I start my book with a description of lots of great developments that we've seen in in the past 30 years, and you wouldn't really get this from the news. But actually, you know, we've, we've made extraordinary progress. Child mortality has declined by more than 50%. Extreme poverty has declined by 50%. If you look at the amount of war deaths around the world, it has actually declined by 19% since 1946. We live in the most peaceful of, time, of all times. Crime has been going down. You know, we are more educated than ever before. And sure, there are lots of things to worry about as well. Inequality, climate change, etc., etc. But what I always say is that I'm, you know, I'm not an optimist, but I'm not a pessimist either. I like to call myself a possibilist. Just to, to remind people that things can be different. There's nothing inevitable about the way we've structured our society and economy right now. It can all change. There's nothing inevitable about you know, in which direction history will go. And that should just give us energy to get up in the morning and to do something and to contribute to, to a better society. The, the one thing to remember, though, is that it always starts on the fringes. So, all these exciting new ideas, whether you talk about a job guarantee or a basic income or whatever, all these ideas always start with the crazy people who are first dismissed as unrealistic, unreasonable, and then these ideas start moving towards the center. It's only at the end that the politicians start talking about it. You know, when they are talking about about it in Canberra or, or places like that, then you know that you've already moved a very long way. But, you know, it should give you energy. Don't worry about, you know, being dismissed as unrealistic or crazy because that's that's how it always starts.
0: Rutger, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. That was Rutger Bregman, author of Utopia for Realists. And that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you like this podcast, please consider liking it, subscribing it. You can get it in whatever your favorite podcast application is. We're going to be rolling them out every couple of weeks or so and our next episode is with Stephanie Kelton uh, who is Bernie Sanders former chief economic advisor and one of the leading proponents of a job guarantee around the world it's a fantastic conversation can't wait to see you then